0: Hey guys, welcome to Precision Nutrition's Eat, Move, and Live Better podcast. I'm Dr. John Berardi, co-founder of Precision Nutrition, and if you're not familiar with us, over the last 15 years we've become the world's largest online nutrition, fitness, and health coaching company. Through that time, as you can imagine, we've watched fad diets and fitness crazes come and go. But when the fads have failed and the crazes died out and people just want something that works, they turn to Precision Nutrition for things like expert coaching guided mentorship, and online support. In this podcast, which is a mix of recorded articles, interviews, and roundtable discussions, myself and my Precision Nutrition colleagues will help make the whole nutrition, fitness, and health process work for you. Ideally, you'll discover that eating, moving, and living well can be easy and enjoyable, for now and into the future. So let's get
1: started. Hi, this is Bryce from Precision Nutrition reading today's article, the Barefoot Running Craze, Bogus Fad or Brilliant Way to Achieve Health by MC Schrefel. For more than 40 years, people in the West have been running on built-up, squishy shoes, hoping to prevent injury and go faster. Yet barefoot runners argue that running without shoes or in minimal footwear is safer and better. Who's right? And what kind of shoes should you wear for the healthiest running experience? a brief history of squishy shoes once upon a time people ran without shoes or else they wore simple sandals like huaraches. they pounded along packed dirt pathways they charged through rocky canyons they galloped across green grasslands all barefoot or nearly so in some parts of the world people still run like this meanwhile during the last four decades in the west an entire industry has grown up around running shoe technology. These days, a lot of us believe that unless we've strapped on our gel arch, pronated, supinated, mid-soled, out lace-patterned, mega-industry runners, we shouldn't even think about hitting the streets. But there's also another camp, the so-called barefoot runners. They say the craze for built-up shoes is little more than baloney. They believe we'd be better off returning to a more natural shoe for running or even leaving off shoes altogether. So who's right? People have been running since the dawn of time, to hunt, to escape danger, and even for the simple joy of it. In fact, records of competitive running date back as far as 1829 BCE. But it wasn't until the 1960s that non-conditioned athletes began to take up regular running as a form of exercise and with this new group of recreational runners came a whole new interest in sport-specific footwear. Soon, the iconic Nike Waffle Tread hit the stores. Its success may have been due to the fact that it was lighter than most shoes then in use. Compared to its successors, the amount of heel lift in the shoe was next to nothing. Just for comparison, take a look at the original shoe compared to the Tribute version from 2007. You can find photos of each on today's article online at precisionnutrition.com forward slash barefoot dash running. In the photos you'll see the massive amounts of foam and elevated heel in the newer tribute version. It's quite a difference. So what happened during that 30-year period to change the shape of shoes? Well, new materials, and quite frankly, new science. From the mid-1970s onwards, running companies got scientists involved in footwear design. This is when the terms neutral, pronation, and supination entered runner's vocabulary. Suddenly, it wasn't enough to simply buy the shoe that seemed to fit best and feel most comfortable. Instead, you had to figure out your running style and pick a shoe to correct your running dysfunction and prevent injury. It sounds sensible in theory. After all, who wants to get hurt? there was just one little problem. Despite the involvement of scientists in the design, no style-specific running shoe has ever been shown to reduce injury. Meanwhile, back in the factories, inventors were slapping together new types of rubbers. Slotted into the soles of shoes in order to improve lift, reduce shock, and re-energize the foot over lengthy runs, these new materials were supposed to help you go the distance in greater safety. Yet recent investigations suggest that these fancy soles don't actually stop us from getting a shock when our feet make contact with the pavement. Instead, they stop us from noticing it. Insights like this have led the trend toward more minimalist shoes. In 1999, designer Robert Fleary took out a patent for a five-finger shoe, first manufactured by Vibram in 2005. In the years since, Five Finger and other low-profile shoes have surged in popularity. From public forums to sport magazines, more and more athletes and ordinary people tout their benefits. Now these days, we can run unshod, without shoes, minimally shod, in shoes with no heel lift and little cushioning, or fully shod, in cushy and inflexible sneakers with heel lift. It's great to have options, but sometimes they make life confusing. So before you buy your next pair of shoes or throw your shoes away you probably want to know is one approach better for performance is one approach safer and you probably want to use evidence to make your decision so let's take a look at what the research says if you want the cliffs notes Cole notes version the jury's still out there simply aren't enough studies to support any absolute claims what we do know Is that running barefoot or in minimalist shoes may improve performance but this might relate more to the stride than to the shoe itself meanwhile we don't yet know for sure whether minimalist shoes reduce the risk of injury compared to more built-up shoes now does that mean that squishy shoes do prevent injury (laughs) not quite here's a curious fact despite shoe manufacturers claims that built-up sneakers will protect us they haven't reduced the rate of running injuries. In the past four decades, running injuries haven't happened any less often. In fact, none of the research looking at various kinds of shoes shows any real effect on injury. It turns out that our running gait actually matters more than the shoe. And good form, which includes impact forces and compliance, can protect us from injury and improve our performance far more reliably than any type of shoe. So let's take a look at those impact forces. Basically, there are three kinds of runners. The first is a rear foot striker. Their heel hits the ground first. Then there are the midfoot strikers, who hit the ball of their foot, then the heel of their foot strikes the ground. And lastly, there are the forefoot strikers, where the ball of the foot hits the ground and the heel never really touches down. Most of us have a preferred or instinctive style, but we can learn to use a different gait and our footwear or lack thereof it may affect our gait. Research demonstrates that people who run barefoot tend to strike in the forefoot or midfoot first. Meanwhile, shod runners tend to strike the rear of the foot. In fact, padded inflexible shoes may actually convert some people to this gait, especially those who are instinctive midfoot strikers. How so? Well, the built-up part of the shoe is so big that the midfoot landing becomes virtually impossible. Rear foot striking becomes the path of least resistance. Rear, middle, front, what's the difference? Rear foot strikers land with significantly greater force than midfoot strikers or forefoot strikers, a force equaling one and a half to three times their body weight. Just imagine how you'd feel. If an object one and a half to three times your weight repeatedly crashed into another part of your body, ouch, no wonder running can take a toll. Meanwhile, the impact appears much smaller for midfoot strikers and forefoot strikers. You can see two charts about this in today's article online at precisionnutrition.com forward slash barefoot running compliance and increasing movement response. Not only do rear foot strikers hit the ground harder, they also run with a fairly stiff extended leg. This position sends a lot of additional force up the body. Forefoot strikers and midfoot strikers are at an advantage here again. With knees bent and their feet positioned more under their hips, their ankles are correspondingly softer and more compliant. That means they are more responsive to the environment. Forces in a run can be adjusted in real time. Wanna know what we mean? Try running barefoot in the grass or sand and see how your gait delicately and quickly responds to the terrain. Common injuries, oh dem bones. It's pretty easy to see why impact or micro fractures are one of the most common running injuries around. No wonder manufacturers have added cushioning to their shoes. This cushioning may cut down on the impact of rear foot striking a little bit, but only by about 10% at most. Much of the force remains, We just don't feel it the same way, which may be worse for us in the long run, so to speak. With all the force that running generates, you'd think it might help us build stronger bones. Alas, running has many great benefits, but building bone mineral density is not one of them. To build bone mass, we need muscle mass. And the biggest known contributors to bone mineral density are stop-start sports, like racquetball and soccer, and resistance training for loading bones along their lengths. Apart from microfractures, another common runner's complaint is plantar fasciitis, sometimes called jogger's heel. Though most of the pain is felt in the foot, it's actually caused by tight calf muscles, or Achilles tendons. Rear foot striking can increase the likelihood of developing plantar fasciitis. Midfoot and forefoot strikers don't seem to face the same risk. Then there's the environment. This may seem obvious, but it's easier and safer to run barefoot or minimally shod in some places than others. Contrary to what you might think, hard ground may not pose any particular risk, assuming a forefoot or midfoot striking gait. But weather conditions and other factors very much might. It's not a great idea to run truly barefoot in snow and ice. Shoes do help buffer us a bit against frostbite. Dr. Mick Wilkinson may compete barefoot in the Great North Run in the UK, but runners in Ikwa should think twice. If your feet are numb, by definition, you've lost sensation, and if you lose sensation, you can injure yourself without being aware that it's even happening. Bad news. Plus, if you live in a neighborhood littered with broken glass, sharp pebbles, needles, or rusty nails, you probably want some protection on your feet. Running barefoot at night is also extra risky, for obvious reasons. If you can't see the ground, you might step on something you don't want to. In short, it's one thing to run barefoot on a sunlit beach in Aruba, it's another thing to try it on a January night in the Bronx. So what's the bottom line? Running barefoot or minimally shod tends to promote a forefoot or midfoot striking gait. But does this mean that barefoot or minimally shod runners get fewer injuries? Maybe. But we don't have enough research to say for sure what we do know is that cushioned inflexible shoes may contribute to a false sense of security about gait we become less aware of how we're running and that's a problem because shoes don't eliminate impact forces associated with many running problems however gait awareness and if necessary gait modification can Be careful though if you do decide to transition to minimalist shoes or to running barefoot after using built up shoes. Feet and your legs need time to get used to the new positioning. Build up slowly and be realistic. So what about performance? Barefoot and minimally shod runners tend to take shorter, faster strides than shod runners regardless of speed, and this is generally a good thing. There are some interesting trade-offs between stride length and frequency but in distance running, elite athletes have a turnover of around 180 steps per minute, where non-elite runners tend to have turnover rates of about 140 to 160 steps per minute. Shod runners also tend to run at 140 to 160 steps per minute regardless of speed. This simple statistic suggests that minimalist footwear, which puts the foot more under the hip, helps to promote an elite level cadence and reduces overstriding. On the other hand, research also shows that rear foot strikers consume a little bit less oxygen than midfoot strikers when running at under 15 kilometers per hour. Theoretically, this could translate to better performance. Yet midfoot strikers still perform extremely well at energy taxing ultra marathon events, to take just one example. In other words, it looks as if no one variable tells the whole story about performance. So what are some other reasons to consider minimalist footwear? By now you've probably figured out that minimalist shoes or barefoot running promote a healthy running stride. However, it's possible to run this way in high-tech shoes as well. Indeed, Qi running, a program designed to improve running technique, was encouraging forefoot striking and other related mechanics as far back as 1999, before the rise of minimalist footwear. And sports scientist Michael Yesis did the same in his 2000 book, Explosive Running. Yet there might be other compelling reasons to switch. Experienced minimalist runners say that they have a better awareness of their bodies and space. This in turn improves balance and stability. Also with greater feedback from the terrain, joints get a better workout. And all of this is magnified when you move from minimalist shoes to a true barefoot experience. When your soul touches the ground you enjoy all kinds of sensations hot cold wet dry remember squishing in the mud when you were a kid or burrowing into cool sand it's fun to feel with your feet now should anyone avoid minimalist footwear or barefoot running most kinds of feet can do well in minimalist shoes but there are a few exceptions let's take a closer look first flat feet if your feet are flat you might worry that you require arch support but try spending a little bit of time each day walking or running barefoot or in flexible footwear. Your feet will get stronger and you may feel differently. Next, orthotics. Maybe you wear orthotics. Does this mean you can't go minimalist? It depends. If you're wearing orthotics because of a metatarsal or foot pad disease, you should probably stick to shoes that make room for the device. You'd have significant pain without the extra protection. But if orthotics are simply a site of pain solution for a non specific injury? By practicing more dynamic joint mobility and exploring more flexible footwear in a gradual, progressive way, you may improve your posture and gait as well as your mobility. You might even free yourself of the orthotics. Then there's foot deformities and numbness. Those with foot differences that affect gait, for example, club foot, should take extra care but they may be able to run in minimalist or barefoot shoes with proper coaching. Author M.C. Schreffel has worked with runners in this situation. Barefoot running may actually improve bunions. It sounds counterintuitive since the forefoot strikes the ground with greater force, but many runners attest to the effect. The only people who really shouldn't try minimalist shoes or barefoot running are those with diseases like diabetes that cause numbness in the feet. So what if you're not into running? Are there other places to wear minimalist shoes? You bet. Walking and hiking in minimalist footwear is a great experience. You really feel the ground under your feet. People who do it say it's like being a kid again. Also, there's an old school approach to powerlifting that prefers Converse Chuck Taylors to any other kind of shoe, precisely because they allow the wearer to feel the ground. And many home gym users prefer to be barefoot. And what about other sports? As great as minimalist footwear is, it's not for every activity. Even the most ardent barefoot and minimalist types will lace up for certain kinds of sports. Dr. Mick Wilkinson, who is barefoot in the UK North 12 months a year, wears shoes for racquetball. Steven Sachin, the guy who has modernized the huaraches with zero shoes, wears spikes for sprinting. It would be challenging to strike a football without some toe cover. Power to the pedal and cycling, owes a lot to stiff soles. There's also an entire wonderful history about lifting shoes and how they have gone from almost a boxer-type lace-up to stiff, wooden-soled versions with some heel lift intended to reduce the strain on the Achilles tendon. So how to find a minimalist shoe? Let's say you're intrigued by the research and ready to give minimalist footwear a try. How will you recognize a minimalist shoe? First, they come in a couple different varieties, from the separated toe versions to footwear that looks more like a traditional shoe. But all minimalist shoes share the following characteristics. The cushioning in the front and back of the shoe is about the same, and not very thick. The sole will be flexible, you'll easily be able to bend it at the midfoot, but that's not all. It will also be twistable along the length of the long axis. In fact, if you can't twist it as if you were wringing out a towel, it's probably not minimalist. And lastly, there won't be a stiff arch support. Transitioning to minimalist footwear and barefoot running. If you're ready to try minimalist footwear or barefoot running, transition gradually. We can't emphasize this enough, we'll say it again. Transition gradually. For example, First, increase the flexibility of your shoe and only afterwards consider reducing its squishiness. Look at this as an experiment where you change only one variable at a time. Start indoors. Let your foot get used to this less structured shoe by wearing it indoors during the day, in the office, up and down stairs. After several days, go outside. Next, take yourself outdoors in the shoe for 15 minutes. See how you feel walking over different surfaces. Your feet may get tired at first. Stop before they get really sore. Think of this as progressive resistance. If your feet don't hurt after 15 minutes the first day, great, but stop anyway. Try 20 minutes the next day. Keep building up slowly. Once you've built up to an hour outside and you feel good, you may be ready to explore further and longer feel free to bring along some backup familiar shoes to swap into. And have a backup plan once you decide to increase your duration or intensity. Alternately, have an exit plan like a bus stop or a cab to get you back to square one. This will reduce any stress you might feel if your feet do get sore. Work on your gait before going all out. If you plan to run, you can begin to prepare your calves and hips for the new motion by practicing a more mid or forefoot gait. See how that feels. You might find a coach to help you. Think about stride length and frequency once you start running. Count your turnover. Try to get your cadence with a mid or forefoot strike in the 180 step zone. Pay attention. See how your calves feel doing this in your regular shoes before you try something like this in the freeze. Slowly build up your new technique in the new shoes. Once that adaptation's working for you, try 15 minutes on a few different surfaces in your minimal shoes. Build up gradually. Again, if we don't say this a million times, you'll probably ignore it. Build up slowly. Unless, of course, you like injury and pain. If so, by all means, buy a pair of minimalist shoes and go for a 5K run during the first week. Let us know how that works out for you. Again, when you feel happy with your increased mobility and you've explored your four-foot gait and those muscle adjustments in your running, you can start to reduce the squish in your shoes. Start indoors at a good temperature. Most minimalist footwear is four to seven millimeters deep. That can be a very big change from the free or any other twisty shoe. When you first head outside, be prepared to be very aware of the surfaces beneath your feet. Again, take it easy and go short at first. Personally, we suggest folks do a lot of indoor walking in thin-soled shoes like Vibram Five Fingers or Merrill Trail Gloves before heading outdoors. And once again, if you decide to go even further and try barefoot running, you'll need to go through a similar process. It's an adventure! Surfaces that you never felt before can now offer massages to your feet. Now another complementary approach to prepare you for minimalist footwear is to practice dynamic joint mobility. Movement and walking and running doesn't only happen at the foot. Minimalist footwear cues us to more use of our joints. By working on our dynamic joint mobility, deliberately firing up our nervous system's awareness around our joints, we become more responsive and more prepared for the new demands. Above all, listen to your body. Full disclosure, author MC Schreffel's footwear has been passing the twist test since 2008 when she started wearing Vibram Five Fingers. Since then, her flexible footwear has included a wide variety of twist-test-passing shoes, though she hasn't gone as far as chainmail, and yes, that is an option, and you can find a link to it in today's article online. If you choose to make the change, just remember, tissue building takes time, months of time, but if you let yourself build up gradually to minimalist footwear, you may never turn back. That's it for today's reading of Barefoot Running. Once again, you can read it yourself online at precisionnutrition.com forward slash barefoot running. Have a great day.
0: Okay, everyone, that's it for this week's edition of Precision Nutrition's Eat, Move, and Live Better podcast. For more information about how to eat, move, and live better yourself, and for some awesome free nutrition and health resources, come visit us on the web at www.precisionnutrition.com. You could also visit us on Facebook or on Twitter at InsidePN. Talk to you next time.